0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Gotta say, that's the best-looking scripture reader. And we've gotten up here, church. I'm so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. Um, if you're new to Connection Church, Athens, I want you to know that one of the things we love to do here at our church, and something we hold very uh, dear, is the practice of preaching through entire books of the Bible. And I get this mic down just a just a hair. Thank you, man. We love to preach through entire books of the Bible. And so we just spent 10, 12 weeks going through the book of Daniel. And that was great. What a journey. And, and this is what we do. We pick a book, if it's Ephesians or Ecclesiastes, so many different books that we've gone through now. And we just go from beginning to end. And, and it's a great practice, it really is, to, to read God's word the way that it was written by the original authors. But there are certain books, according to this practice, that look like unconquerable mountains because of their size. And one such book would be the book of Psalms. At one chapter a week, we're talking about three years of sermons and try preaching Psalm 119 in one week. Sounds like a tall task. So I think preachers who have this practice may look at certain books and think, I'm not setting out on that journey because I might die from lack of strength and my church people might kill me for being in the book of Psalms for three years. So we're going to treat the book of Psalms this way. We're going to go through just a chunk at a time and come back maybe every year and do about five Psalms a year. And then when I'm ready to retire, we'll hit Psalm 150. That sounds good, but that's the plan, church. We're gonna go through five Psalms and we're gonna start in uh, Psalm chapter one today. So I'm glad that you're here. Uh, uh, First, a word about the book of Psalms and why it's different and why we can attack this book this way instead of like a book of Daniel going straight through. Um, This book is very different. And and I think I I just wanna describe to you Psalms rich diversity. I think that may be the best way to describe this book. You see, last week we looked at, or last several weeks, we've looked at the book of Daniel, and God wrote the book of Daniel through one author. That was Daniel. The book of Psalms is not this way. It's not written by one author. It's written by at least seven authors. It was a compilation of many different works of many different authors. You say, Liam, how would you, why would you say at least seven. Well, there's seven we know of, and then there are some that don't even tell us who the author is. If you've got your Bible open to Psalm chapter one, turn the page with me to Psalm chapter three. I want you to notice before Psalm three, verse one, we're given a little bit of a note. If your Bible, I don't know what yours says, mine says a Psalm of David, Psalm three, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now that note there is not God's infallible scripture. That is a note that scribes put in, uh, Jewish scribes, when they were compiling the Mesoretic or the Hebrew text. And so there's no reason for us to uh, distrust those notes. They're just not infallible. And if you look at these notes, over, about 70 Psalms are attributed to David. So we believe that David wrote about half of these, uh, but there were some who, who wrote other uh, Psalms as well. And then if you look at Psalm chapter one today, there's no note. So who wrote it? I don't know. I don't know who wrote this psalm. It's classically, the church has said that this was a a psalm of Solomon. I'll get to that in a minute, but there's at least seven authors here. A couple of other things I want to talk about with the way we study the book of Psalms. We've got different authors. That means there's different types or genres of Psalm. And we talked about this a little bit with Daniel, but remember, Daniel is the biblical genre of prophecy, right? Foretelling future events and and telling us about uh, who the person of Christ will be. Not all of Daniel was was that way, but some of it was narrative, some of it was stories, but it's a book of prophecy and different Psalms should be studied different ways. We're going to see Psalms that are prophecy. We're also going to see Psalms that are more like wisdom literature. So they're going to read more like the book of Proverbs than a song. That's today in Psalm chapter one. And so I want us to kind of be thinking through how do we study and how do we understand the book of Psalms? And I I don't know if you noticed, but I got some other books up here to kind of get this idea. First and foremost, for every Psalm, we need to understand the book of Psalms in whatever chapter we're reading as the word of God. This is God revealing himself to us, seven, at least seven other authors, but one God telling us about who he is. This is God's word, just like the book of Daniel. And so there will be different biblical genres like prophecy and like wisdom that we'll see. But I got a couple of other books here for us to kind of understand the diversity of the function of the book of Psalms and, and kind of how this book worked for the, for the nation of Israel. Does anybody know what this is? It is a book. I know y'all probably can't see except for the first few uh, rows. It's a hymnal. That's right. This is the church hymnal. Does he, Kids, church history, uh, some churches used these before they had TV screens and slides. Can you believe that? Anybody remember these? My church growing up, we had two of these in the back of the pew. We had the church hymnal and the Baptist hymnal. And we read from, or we sang from these books. It's interesting, I just kind of flipped it open. It just kind of fell open to it. I wonder if it's because it's just the most popular song in here. And some of these, I have no idea what they are, but uh, stand with me and sing uh, page 170, Jesus paid it all. We all know that, yeah, Jesus paid it all. And so hymns, if you think about just their cultural significance for each one of us, this isn't the word of God. Okay? If it quotes scripture, then it's the word of God. But if it's something else, not the word of God, it's the word of man. But it communicates to us who our God is insofar as it represents scripture. And we know many of these hymns. Have you ever been in a sermon one time and the pastor was talking about Jesus? And he might just drive the point home by saying, Jesus paid it all. That drives the point home for us because it's familiar. It's something we know about our God because we've learned it in a song. And the book of Psalms, y'all, is God's word? Absolutely. But it is also the nation of Israel's hymn book. They used these songs. They knew these songs. They sang them. In fact, it was not only their hymn book, but it was also their road trip playlist. If you're going through the book of Psalms and you see a note that says, a song of ascent, What that means is that song was sung as the people of Israel went to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival or celebrate a feast like Passover. They would sing that song when they ascended as they made their way up to the city of Jerusalem. Got one more kind of book here this morning for us to think about the function of the book of Psalms. And I know you may not be able to really tell what this is, but this is my journal. And the book of Psalms Functions maybe not so much for us, but for the authors, it was a record of their prayers to God. It was a record of them communicating with God. And I wish I could tell you that I wrote out more of my prayers. I don't. A lot of times I'm just praying and, and, and verbally or in my mind, and my mind wanders, but I found writing out my prayers to be a very helpful thing to do. It slows me down. Helps me focus on what I'm doing when I'm putting pen to paper. And we're going to see that in this in, in these Psalms, even in the first verse, verse five chapters, we're going to see David just crying out to God. He's going to cry out, God, you're so good. You've done so many amazing things to me. And he says, God, there are people pursuing me. Please help. In the mountain and the valley, we see it work as a journal as well. And so I want us to think about the chapter the right way. And so when we come in for the next four weeks, I'm going to say, I want you to think about Psalm chapter two as a, the word of God and prophecy. And for chapter one today, I want you to think about this book as the word of God and wisdom literature. This chapter reads a whole lot like a Proverbs. I've got five points this morning, and the first one comes from verse one. Let's read it uh, together. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. One more thing to mention about the book of Psalms is because they were seven different authors, somebody had to get all of these works together and bring them into one book. And there's a reason why Psalm chapter one kind of kicks off the rest of the book of Psalms. And it's saying, blessed is this person who is free from sin. Blessed is this person who who reads the word of God. He will be blessed in what he does. And that's my first point this morning is that the righteous have been freed from sin. That's what we see he's saying in, in verse one, how blessed is the man, he starts the entire book of Psalms off with an exclamation. You see this, it's like, you know, you're at a wedding and the bride walks down the aisle and you would say, how beautiful, or you would see a baby for the first time and you would say, how precious, this psalmist is kind of imagining the righteous man and he's saying, how blessed is this person? What does it mean to be hashtag blessed? What does it really mean? You translate this word from Latin or Hebrew into English, it literally means happy. Now, I want us to consider those two English words for a moment. I think we've cheapened the meaning of both of those words. Happiness really has no spiritual value. It just means in the truck, windows down, listening to a country music song. That's kind of our definition of of happiness. What's our definition these days of blessed Hobby Lobby culture? What do we say we're blessed to be Southern, blessed to be a dogs fan, careful, because then we're saying Alabama people. I mean, what are we saying theologically? I mean, you know, cast out, get them out of here. We've kind of cheapened that word because to be blessed, the biblical understanding of that word is this is the most desirable state a human could have. And it is the favor and compassion and love of God so that this person is in right relationship with God. That's what it means to be blessed. It doesn't mean to be from a, per- a certain part of the country or root for a certain team or have this many kids. It means Jesus has forgiven my sin. That's what it means to be blessed. And the psalmist starts with how blessed is the man. This person isn't dead. He's alive. He's not a stranger to God. He's a friend of God. He's not carrying the guilt of his sin. He's been set free. This man is blessed. Church, I want you to know that in Christ, there's only one kind of blessed. There's no varying degree of blessed. It's not like Jamie's more blessed than me or James might not be quite as blessed as me. In Christ, we are all blessed and it's the kind of blessed that can only be described as our cups overflowing. Every spiritual blessing, good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, lavished on us in Christ. Only one kind of blessed. No degree. He says, how blessed And it's the man? He's looking at this guy. This guy is blessed. Different is he's in right relationship with God. Why? Why is he blessed? Is he blessed because of the great things he's done? No, he's blessed by what he's been freed from. He's blessed by what he doesn't do, not what he does. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. Now, sometimes when we read a psalm like this, we think, all right, dude, you just said the same thing three times. What are you talking about here? And we just kind of gloss over, but I want you to notice there's a progression here. He's talking about the whirlpool or the gravitational pull of a lifestyle of sin that will take you and tempt you and get you to fall once and then set you out on a path to make you into someone you don't want to be. This is what sin does. Sure, he might God might or excuse me, uh, Satan. Excuse me, who? Satan might tempt us one time and say, uh, do this small thing, and then get us to do something a little bit more, and then suddenly we notice we've kind of made a shipwreck of our family and our faith and our jobs, and that's what he's showing us here. He says, first, this person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. First, let's talk about the verbs. Let's talk about walk, stand, and sit. I want you to see the progression here. How many people have been to the mall before and seen those people who are trying to sell you sunglasses or phone cases, and they don't have their own store? They're kind of in that big hall in those little kiosks. All they have is a little counter. You guys know what I'm talking about? And you're walking by. You're doing the celebrity. You're just like... Just, just keep walking by. But their goal at the end is to sell you, let's do just a, a pair of sunglasses. And so as you're walking by, they're going to try to get you to stop walking and start standing. So I'm walking by the sunglasses kiosk and they say something to me. Maybe they've got the sunglasses on and they're, they're holding them out. And they, you know, I see them and they say something to me. I say, really, you're telling me if I run over those sunglasses with my truck, then they won't break. And I start walking, and I start standing. Am I more likely to buy the sunglasses walking by or standing? Then they begin to tell me a little bit more, and I start to think a little bit while I'm standing. And I think, hey, do those come in hot pink? And they say, yes. And out of nowhere, a stool appears for you to what? For you to sit and try them on. I was walking by, I had no part with it. They said something, I'm titted, I'm standing. And then before you know it, I'm sitting. Church, it starts with us walking in the counsel of the wicked. For us to think maybe God's word isn't true. Maybe he really doesn't love me. Maybe he really isn't best for me. And I start to believe the counsel of the wicked. I fall to temptation that I recognize I'm on a new path. I'm on the path of sinners if you continue down that road one day, you will be in the seat of the scoffers. In the book of Proverbs, the scoffer is the worst sinner. He describes these different characters. There's the fool who just doesn't know what he's doing. There's the sinner, and then there's the scoffer. The scoffer is not just content in a life of sin. His goal and his aim is to pull other people down into the life of sin. He makes fun of God. He says, you should turn away from him, and you should start doing what I'm doing in church. I'm just here to tell you by the grace of God, we need rescue from this path because many of us have gotten on it and didn't even know and looked up one day and we were sitting on the seat of scoffers. We were making fun of God and trying to get other people to do the same thing. Secondly, in verse 2, I see that this person has left the lifestyle of sin for something new. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Second point is the righteous love, God's word. This person didn't just leave a lifestyle of sin to just sit at home and do nothing. No, he's got a new thing that's on his mind. It's a delight. And it's God's word. Now, when we read this in verse two, and we think about scripture, we should think about Genesis to Revelation, the, the all 66 books of the Bible. But for Solomon or for the psalmist writing this, this was the law of the Lord. The first five books of the Bible, the parts of your Bible that look really brand new. That's that part. The parts maybe we even neglect. His delight was reading about the creation of the world. And God establishing the old covenant and God being faithful through generations and delivering the Israelites out of slavery and giving them a law to communicate his holiness and preserving them in the wilderness and teaching them about purification laws and the holiness of God and the numbers and the record and the census of all that God had done in providing a nation for uh, the nation of Israel or bringing them out and then Deuteronomy's farewell addresses of Moses just saying, be faithful to God. His delight was in that law. And it says, and he meditates on it day and night. In the Hebrew, that kind of idiom, day and night, literally just means all the time. He meditates on it all the time. I was thinking about this idea. How do you know if you like the song or if you liked a movie or you liked a book? It's when you put it down or turn it off, and then you go away and you're still thinking about it, right? If it's a good song, you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be kind of doing the chorus again. It's super catchy. Right? If it's a movie that you like, you're walking out of the theater and you're not just thinking about, hey, where we're going to go eat. But like, What did you think about that ending? Did you like that? You, you're, you're not content to just let it sit and walk away. You want to meditate on it. You want to fill your mind with it. What's your attitude toward the word of God? Is it to read it, to check it off our boxes and say, I'm a good little Christian, I, I read it today, and then go on and do what we want to do? Or do we fill our minds continuously with the word of God? He says it, he delights in it, he loves it, it's not a chore for him, and he meditates on it day and night. I think about James chapter 1, perhaps the New Testament equivalent to wisdom literature. James 1, uh, the the apostle or or James the evangelist tells us about the kind of opposite dispensation to the word of God, someone who would put it down and forget about it. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. There tells us really two things in this passage about why we forget the word of God. And the first one is that we don't apply it. He says, if you hear it, but you don't apply it, you're probably going to forget it. This person who, who sits and listens to a sermon on Sunday morning, but they don't delight in God's word. and They don't receive the word of God. They don't apply it. They're going to forget it. The other one is perhaps because they don't want to re- remember and realize who they are. He says, reading the word of God is like looking in a mirror and you see yourself. Maybe you don't want to see yourself the way God sees. You You don't want to see yourself according to the truth. You'd rather believe a lie. You'd rather be in deception and in darkness. So you walk away and you forget who you are. Church, it's the word of God, your delight. Are we forgetting his word because we're scared of the application of his word? Third thing I see, and it comes from verse three, is that the righteous are nourished by the living God. Verse three. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Following the psalmist's kind of profile of this righteous person, we got to think a little bit about a tree for a minute. He says that this righteous person. Is like a tree in three ways. He's planted by streams of water. He yields its fruit in its season and his leaf does not wither. Let's take the first one. He's planted by streams of water. What is he saying here? He's saying that this righteous person is connected to an infinite source. He's connected to a, a source of nourishment, right? spiritual nourishment that will never run dry. Think about a tree planted by streams of water uh, versus a tree planted by the, in, in just in the middle of a desert. That tree's not going to get any nourishment, and the only way it could get nourishment would be maybe a rain passing by every now and then. And he says the person who's, been, who's said no to sin and they're delighting in the word of God is constantly nourished by the living God. Now, I ask you, church, have you tapped into an infinite source of living water, or are you just kind of waiting on the rains? You know, coming to church once a week, and this being your time of spiritual nourishment living water by the stream, or or waiting on the rain every now and then? Which one is it? This is the rain. I can't be your infinite source of spiritual nourishment, and I cannot provide all the nourishment you need in the preaching hour for your walk. You need to be connected to the infinite source, and that's this word. It's the delight of the righteous person, and they meditate on it all the time. Don't put that weight on your connect group leader. They can't be your infinite source of spiritual nourishment. Only God can do that. And I I encourage you, go straight to the source. Be a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in its season. I love this truth here. He's saying that this person will be fruitful if they um, live their life this way and that the word of God produces fruit in our lives and for the kingdom of God. It's interesting that phrase there, in its season. Some of us would think, well, if God's the never-ending source of nourishment, wouldn't that mean that I will be fruitful all the time? And notice he doesn't say who, who yields its fruit all the time. He says, in its season. It could, I just thought of um, verses uh, 8 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. You guys know this passage. says for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or trees planted by streams of water because of the gospel. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I love that passage. It says that God has got works for you to do. On the other side of the gospel, on the other side of justification, as you're walking in sanctification, he's got a plan for you that you would be fruitful and that he's prepared those works. They may not be in every season. It may not be in every moment. They, the fruit may not come the way you think it's going to, but we can have confidence that when I am in Christ, I will produce the appropriate fruit in the right season, the fruit that God has prepared beforehand, that I would walk in it. God has got works for his church. He's got fruit for his church, and it may not be in every season, but it is appropriate, and it's the plan of God. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, and thirdly, his leaf does not wither. I love this idea, too, that the fruit you and I produce will not hurt the health of the tree, that God will call you to do really scary things and really hard things to produce fruit for his kingdom, but through it all you will be preserved. Belief will not wither. The ultimate fulfillment of that is eternal life in Christ, and whatever he does, he prospers. I've heard the the passage Psalm 1 taught as this idea of Psalm 1 through 3 is about the righteous and verses 4 and 6 are about the wicked. And I don't think that's the right way to divide this passage. I believe verses 1 and 3 are about the righteous person. Verses 4 and 5 are about the wicked. And verse 6 is kind of a summary statement of both. Let's read verses 4 and 5 about the wicked. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. His description of the wicked here in Psalm chapter 1, in in both verses, he he describes this separating of the wicked person from the righteous person. He says in verse 4, the wicked person is like chaff. Chaff is kind of that non-nutritional part of a husk of wheat, And he says that the chaff will be driven away by the wind. We actually did this one time growing up. I remember um, we grew corn and we had so much uh, husk kind of in the the kernels of corn. And so we got a box fan, no joke, Sal was raised. And we turned that box fan on high and we just threw the corn up in the air. And the the, the fruit, the nutritional part will fall back down to the ground because it has some weight. But the husk and the chaff just blew away in the wind. God says, this is coming. The wicked will not last. He's right. You know, you think about the church reading this. We think, why is the wicked person being blessed? Why does it look like they're prospering? He says, that's not going to last. They're like the grass. They're going to fade away. They're going to be blown away in the wind. Notice the separation language in in, in verse 5, too. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. He says, there's coming a day of judgment and the wicked will not stand. The righteous are there. They're assembled. The wicked person will not be there. And he's describing for us, church, this future time when righteous and wicked people will be separated. We live in this season right now where there are people in our families, and in our workplaces, and in the university, and and we're all mixed up together. The chaff and the fruit aren't separated. They're living together and working together. Jesus told us in Matthew 13, and by way of parable, that there will be wheat and weeds growing together, but that one day believers and unbelievers would be separated. And the fruit of the path thereon would come to pass. And the righteous would go to everlasting life with God. And the wicked would go to everlasting punishment and torture separated from the presence of God. And I think because we're in this season of the righteous and the wicked person together, our minds are not seeing the sense of urgency here. We're thinking, oh, that's way in the future. We don't have to worry about that. Or even the line of righteous and wicked starts to get blurry. Oh, that's a pretty good person. I know they don't believe in God and that they've actually rejected him and they don't have faith in Christ, but you know, they live next door to me. We have the same type of grass. How could they be chaff and I be? And the most loving thing I can tell you, church, even in this room, we cannot be so naive to believe that everyone here is saved. We can't do that. We can't operate that way. Even us, all of us sitting here today, everybody wearing a black Connection Church Athens t-shirt. Sometimes it's hard to tell. But we're told at the end of time, God will separate and his judgment will be just. Notice this summarizing statement in verse six, fifth point, how do I get on the righteous way? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse six in the Hebrew literally means that the Lord guides the way of the righteous. He knows knows the way. He's the God. He's heading out in front. He knows that way. That's the way it leads to life. But the wicked will perish. So I wanna ask you, and I'm gonna gonna do it myself, but take stock of Psalm chapter one. Which one are you? Which path are you on? And, And which one describes you? I'll just do myself. Verse one, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So this person says no to temptation. They do not stand in the path of the sinners. They, they have no sinful lifestyle or no sinful patterns in their life and they've never made fun of God or actually drug somebody down. Uh, I'm not doing so good after verse one. I'm gonna let y'all know. I've believed the lies of the world. I've taken place. Part in the ways of the world. But this person, let's see if I can do good on verse two. Let's see, if, let's see if I can redeem myself. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. I've actually done a lot of meditating on Netflix. I don't know if I've done so much meditating on the law of the Lord. Sure, I read my Bible. Sure, I know some things about scripture. But my life from beginning to now has been marked by a person who delights in the law of the Lord. I'll be honest, I think I fall short of verse two as well. Let's try verse three. Maybe we can, we, can, we can salvage the series. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. There have been seasons of my life I have felt very dry because I was not connected to the source because of my pride and my sin and I tried to fix myself with water that made me thirsty. I think I failed verse 3 as well. It is healthy, it is right, church, for us to identify with verses 4 and 5 on our own merit. You and I are not verses 1 through 3. We've fallen short of verses one. Through 3. They are the glory and standard of God. We can't be called righteous people on our own. It's impossible. I want you to notice too something I thought about this week. Verses one through three don't describe Solomon. I think I almost had that idea that the author was talking about himself, but it, it doesn't read that way. It's how blessed is the man? If it was about the the author, he would say, "How blessed am I?" But my delight is in the law of the Lord, and in in his law, I meditate day and night. He's not describing himself. He's not describing us. Who's he describing? Who's the only person who fits the description of verses one through three? Jesus. It's all about him, even in Psalm chapter one. Jesus came, the word became flesh, and he always rejected the counsel of the wicked. He never stood in the path of sinners and he never sat in the seat of the scoffers. He was righteous. He was holy. He never participated in their ways. Y'all think about it. He ate with them. He loved them. He saved them. He healed them, but he never took part in their ways. Incredible. He always delighted in the law of the Lord. Satan tempted him in the wilderness and he, he threw scripture back in Satan's face. He was firmly planted by streams of water. He yielded his fruit in its season. And there was one moment we could have said his leaf was, was withered, and that was the moment of the cross. God raised him from the dead, and he is alive forevermore. His leaf does not wither. He's alive. And the work of Christ was not just to come down here and, and be a model. Luke 19, verse 10, tells us, he came to be a model, but he also said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to do all those things, yes, but he came to take you and set you on a new path. He came to lift you out of darkness and out of the way of the wicked and set you on a new path. You can't get on that new path on your own. You can only get there by faith in Jesus. And verses one through three can be said about Liam Hardy only if Liam Hardy is in Christ only way. It's the only way. Verse 6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This person I'm telling you about who lived Psalm 1, 1 through 3 said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I plead with you today, if you thought maybe coming in here, you were on the righteous path and you see because of Psalm uh, chapter one, we're not on our own works, that you would throw yourself on the cross. You cry out to Jesus. Only he can give us the path that leads to life. Not only is, can he give us that path, he is that path. And this is our mindset, church, at Rooted in the Gospel. I'm going ask the band if they'll come up. It's amazing, even in Psalm chapter one, we see our need for Jesus. I know when you came in this morning, you got the elements for communion. and We're going to take communion for just a moment. I'm going to pray, and Jamie's going to come and lead us in, in that time. And that is what we want. That's, we want to steal our, our minds before the Lord and just say, God, I can only be righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Lord, you alone are my righteousness, my one defense. maybe in this time as we take the elements, we can just leave our pride at the door and look to our King. And then we'll respond with a song. Let me pray for us. And then we'll continue. Heavenly Father, God, you're so good to us. And Lord, in Psalm 1, we see our deficiency and we see our need for Jesus. God, I thank you for the truth of the gospel we can be declared righteous, and set on a new path and transferred to a new kingdom because of your work. God, I pray there's somebody here today who's holding on to the scraps of their pride and running to the world, standing in that path of sinners, God, and they're, they're sick. God, you would draw them to yourself. You would deliver them from that, God. That they would place their faith in Jesus. God, we're your church glorified in this place as we remember your work. In Jesus' name, amen.